0: Hello, this is Dr. Jennifer Jones, and welcome to The Secret Life of NeuroHospitalists. Today, in honor of May's mental health awareness designation, we're sharing the first of two shows this month where we dive into the convergence of neurology and psychiatry. As we try to do every episode here on the pod, we'll focus on the unique work of neurologists who work in the hospital setting, thus the title NeuroHospitalist. But for these episodes, we're going to talk about the patients who present with psychiatric symptoms that mimic neurological conditions, such as non-epileptic events, pseudo-stroke, movement disorders, and gait dysfunction that are functional in origin, and vice versa, patients who present with psychiatric presentations who end up having neurological conditions, such as autoimmune encephalitis and various neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's and Huntington's. So we're going to explore this overlap between the functioning of the mind and the functioning of the brain, and to do that, we're going to do something really unusual today. That is, we're in conversation with someone who's usually on the other side of the microphone, so to speak. This shows producer and editor Amy Jones. Amy lost her sister and my friend, Angie, a year ago to suicide. It's hard enough to watch a friend suffer, but as a clinician, I was beginning to wonder if Angie's disease was more than clinical depression, maybe a neurological issue like early-onset dementia. Today, we're going to use Angie's story to explore this personal and clinical journey for the patient and her family. Please know this conversation involves the topic of suicide. If you or someone you know is struggling, remember there is help out there, including the National Suicide Hotline at 988 Let's get started by talking about when you realized something was wrong with your sister and also give me just a little bit of background about, you know, where she was, how old she was, her kind of life prior to things getting
1: rough. In the fall of 2019, the conversations with Angie, typically by phone, were becoming obvious that anxiety was playing a bigger role in her life. She said she was having so much anxiety at one point, she couldn't come to the family meal which we do with all of us who live here in town. She just wasn't feeling herself. She was really having a hard time. And by December, just a few days after Christmas, we actually ended up in the emergency room. She called me, said she really needed help. She just didn't feel well. She didn't feel herself. And so I took her into the emergency room where you, Jenny, actually were on duty that day and sat with us so kindly and sweetly and helped walk us through you know, what we could expect. And Ultimately, she had several tests done indicating that she was anemic at that moment. In fact, her hemoglobin was so low that they offered and did give her a blood transfusion. She was also found to have bizarrely low levels of sodium uh, in her blood at the time. And I think I want to say that they found um, a not severe, but uh, UTI. I think that they indicated she had that as well, but no internal bleeding, no obvious explanation for the anemia. And then they gave her a benzodiazepine to help calm her down. And that's sort of when she sounded really the most normal. She was the least stressed and frightened and visibly affected by this, you know, ultimately crippling anxiety um, once she'd had that. And then things seemed to be okay and she lasted in a level of calm and stability until you know, later that next morning when her anxiety was fully back and she seemed to not feel well again and just be physically really in distress. Amy, how old was she right then? In the end of 2019, she had just turned 53. She goes to the ER. We have that experience. You're there to help walk us through it, um, gratefully. She doesn't go a month. It was just a few weeks between that visit and when she started presenting in January of 2020 with extreme paranoia. That was really the first intense indicator that something was gravely wrong. She had been living with our mother. She came in and woke my mom up and said that there were FBI agents, there was someone bugging the house, maybe the details of what she thought don't entirely matter. But clearly, you know, her arousal system was off the charts. And that was not only painful to watch, but wholly confusing as her family, because you're not sure what first step to take. For us, it ended up looking like Having to get her committed, you know, to seek treatment, she would not go on her own. We had called one of the mobile units and she sort of straightened up enough to speak to them, you know, as sound of mind as she could. And the minute they would leave, it just didn't seem like um, she was in any position to go or, you know, again, have us take her. And,
0: you know, one of the things that when I'm thinking about this, as I remember back, you know, before Angie started being clearly... Not sound in her mind. She always had a little bit of a tendency towards conspiracy thinking. So I, I think one of the things I think about is that sometimes this recognition of when it's become truly, you know, pathological, like obviously that morning, like there's FBI agents out there. But it wouldn't be unusual for Angie, for example, to have been nervous about five g or, yeah. you know, right. all the things were always a little suspect. so that, it can sometimes be a weird continuum and very difficult to know when you've really gone off that ledge, you know, and I think that's one of the things that was probably difficult as a family to recognize.
1: Yeah, putting Angie, I think in our, um, our local mental hospital, which its own system, and there's, you know, the locked floors, and they try to get you stable, and then they try to, you know, help you to the next place. We still didn't have a lot of answers on really what was Wrong with Angie. We still didn't have a true diagnosis. There were some things they were kind of, you know, process of elimination out. It was reported to me that she had been transferred from the mental health wing to the hospital wing uh, for a 24-hour period, she was in some level of detox, they told us. But honestly, just, just anecdotally, I didn't see Angie really using and abusing substances the way she had once in her life. She had no children, was had a lot of wanderlust, traveled the world. I hadn't noticed her having as much of that um, in those end months prior to this sort of event, psychiatric event.
0: Well, and I remember like when you were talking about her being in the hospital that first time around Christmas in the emergency room when you first presented and seeing that hemoglobin of seven and thinking, well, that's certainly gonna make you feel low. She was saying, oh, I'm just in the bed with a hot water bottle and I'm so cold and so, and I thought, well, yeah, I don't know why you're anemic and, and such. And so anyway, I thought she might get better then, but as you mentioned, she got some benzos then as well. And then when you're talking about her withdrawing, the concern was not from alcohol, but it was from benzos, right? She'd been using the benzos maybe more than anybody recognized And hard to know exactly why.
1: Yes, she had had some resource that was getting her um, Valium for about a year, she said, about a year. And she just says it really helped her from day to day. You know, just that this increasingly crippling anxiety, I I wonder if it just came crashing in on her. Plus, Angie is my half-sister, so her father had some mental health issues, according to family lore. He died before she was even one year old, but... Apparently, he struggled, too, with substance abuse and um, other mental health challenges. So, again, I, I know she was a person who, well into 50, at 53, had, you know, two college degrees, had lived all over the world, had been married, had held down jobs. I mean, it's just unbelievable when it when it sort of befalls a person, you just aren't sure how can you help them. So that first trip to the hospital, I think we were all really crossing fingers, holding our breath that this would be the extent of it. She'd come out, she'd have the right medicines, she'd be stabilized, and we'd move on. And as you know, Jenny, that's not what happened.
0: No, and I was going to say, if we, if we kind of skip forward to her having gone through at least a couple of years of treatment, which not everybody even has access to, and it may not be adequate access all the time, but she had shock therapy, she had medications, and she seemed to be getting worse in terms of function, and and to the point where you were basically caring for her like an elderly parent almost, having to find her a place to live, having to help her get groceries, having to help her organize her life on every front, almost just like an older demented parent. And then at some point when you were telling me about a an, an, an episode with her when she was saying, I don't have any water in my house. And you said, you mean the water doesn't work? And she meant no i don't have any bottled water and she couldn't even make the leap between getting a glass and drinking out of the faucet you know she and then that's when maybe before that but that's sort of when i thought you know maybe she needs a neuro exam yeah. maybe it's neurocognitive and i mean valium and benzo abuse and regular use has been correlated, I don't know exactly to what extent, but with dementias. And, and then so we started down that road. Talk about that a little bit.
1: You know, when it was all told, this period of time was over two years after that just singular night in the ER. She makes it another couple of weeks before she is admitted into the psychiatric unit where she stays several weeks, nearly two months. And following that, she spent the remainder of the year with limited degrees of success. She saw a psychotherapist. She continued to take her medicines, but she really struggled. And by January of the following year, not quite a year since she had been in the hospital, the first time she was back in after threatening to take her own life, um, an attempt that was maybe half-hearted, but certainly the start of what would then become our reality, which was that this would become more manifest in her actions. And then she went back in, stayed for another round of several weeks in the first hospital she was put in, and then they transferred her to a facility nearby in the region for her to get electric shock therapy. And we just tried to defer to the professional opinion they said this can sometimes be really helpful when we've had you know unrelenting um, ineffective, you know, treatment with just the pharmacology and uh, the other options we tried. And I have to say, Jenny, when she came back from that, it was like dealing with a real unwell person. She, her memory was spotty. She didn't know to shower or how to take care of herself. Just in those first few days after, um, it's my understanding she had about 10 sessions, she'd be put under for an hour, is how the doctor explained it. And I think it was two minutes was the total amount of time that the electricity was administered. But it was a lot of times, it was 10 times. And so over those, the course of those weeks, you know, she, she was diminished in, in a bodily way. There was a lot that she needed to kind of, you know, really be built back up from. And we did that for about a week to 10 days. She sort of came back around. She started walking and exercising. She lived here with my family in my home. And it seemed like maybe we were heading in a direction of a level of wellness we hadn't been at in many months since it all started. But I will say this, in that time when, when the energy from her wasn't so chaotic and confused and um, to your point, a lot of the cognitive abilities that seem so impaired during this experience is when she really said plainly, I'm done. I'm not supposed to be here it was such a clear mention of suicide but again she wasn't talking the, the scary stuff you know when we think about suicide but mo- but more the finality of like my time here is done and something was changing for her even i think psychically and emotionally about who she'd be after this
0: well you know that's a thing that is reported and you know we've talked about how suicide i believe is most it's most frequent in the spring is the time of year when it's more likely to happen. And um, I wonder it's almost sounding a bit like that, like the the E C T gave her the energy to come up out of that almost, you know, catatonic state and it just didn't quite get her up far enough. And she thought Oh, yeah, I just am awake and alert enough to know that I want to be done with this. But it was like not adequate treatment, like the effect of the ECT, when you're saying like she finally came out of the physical recovery from it, and then she was basically functioning a little better, but yet she had landed on this, this idea, I Am done. And it's almost like that feels like that phenomenon of just kind of coming out of the state where you don't even have enough energy to figure out that you're done. And now you got treated a little bit, but not enough.
1: You bring up a really good point. And, and the but the details of it as told to us by the providers were, you know, this can often take another visit, this can take more rounds and come back and get a touch up. You know, they, it it's more of a process. It's not like you do this one experience or this one window of time and then it's over. And that all may be true. Angie had very distinct feelings about it. She hated it. She didn't love the provider. I mean, she wasn't necessarily as impressed by the results as we all were she was very regretful. She spent a lot of her emotional and verbal time after that was not the paranoia and all the other stuff we'd seen. It was, I've just made terrible choices in my life. I'm, you know, I can't believe, you know, where I am at this spot. I'm not a good sister to you. I'm not a good, it was absolute self-loathing, lack of value and guilt. And I think we know now that that's all part of depression and the psychiatry behind, you know, when you just are losing hope and falling into to some level of despair. So that went on for several months. And then, um, and, and we had okay days and we had sweet moments. She had a great personality. I mean, it was a great storyteller, very funny, and she could access that a little in those days. But about three months after the electroshock therapy, when she was returned to our lives, I came home and she was in the garage with her car running in an effort to asphyxiate and go that way and I wasn't supposed to be here it was a completely serendipitous chance that I would come to the house and open up the garage I was supposed to be out of town and I I'm not proud entirely of my response because I wasn't even sad or worried about her I was just mad I was so mad that she'd put me in that position that she'd put potentially my children coming home in that position, if they had found her, that she'd done it to herself, that we've been so far already. We've been many months, you know, certainly over a year into this.
0: Which I think is an important thing to talk about because it is impossible to be the selfless compassionate person you're never getting anything back and i think being angry you know you've you've been through so much you loved her so ferociously you did as much as anyone could ever wish to have if they were to find themselves in that situation and to feel a little bit betrayed by that would be It would be almost unhuman not to. So I think anger is a perfectly appropriate response right there. And I think it's important to say that because I think anybody who's dealing with a person struggling with this type of thing is going to find themselves feeling anger. And then they are going to feel that guilt around that because you're not allowed to be angry at a ill person.
1: It's a complex stew of emotions, to be sure. And as it turned out, that was her last trip to an acute inpatient facility save for the rehab she actually went to a mental health rehab 30 plus days and there they did therapy every day and handled her prescription management and we just all hoped once again that something this immersive and you know powerful might be something that would change where she had been for these many months. But as it turns out, she stayed there for the month plus, then stayed even longer near the water and in the sunshine with a friend. And by the time she came back in January of 2022, there was really no change. And in fact, she might have even seemed sadder and even more dysfunctional. That's, I think, Jenny, when she came back, I think that is when you got sort of back involved in a way, again, she'd been gone for months. And I think you as a friend wanted to counsel, but as a clinician really wanted to see if you could help in some way. And I think that's when you said, let's start with a neurological conversation. She has now been in the system psychiatrically for over two years. Maybe there's something deeper here, you know, some of the patterns. And um, I think you had, you know, really deduced that, like, how, how's this not, she's not getting any relief from psychiatry.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly where it was. And, you know, of course, having some info from you about the thing that really stood out to me was the day-to-day struggle with simple functioning like an adult. And it just made me think maybe she's losing her frontal lobe function, you know, frontotemporal dementia or something. Because I, you know, we've talked about that I wasn't, I don't know, I guess I think that, of course, mental health failures happen But I thought it happened when people didn't get access to help. So I thought, she's had access to help. She's been on medicines. She's had ECT. And that is nothing I'm familiar with. Complete and utter failure to even just get a little traction. You know, she just seemingly wasn't able to function as an adult. So that to me felt like, okay, now we're looking at brain pathology, which that's the interesting question. And can the mind, you know, can can a person's psyche even go back and affect their brain? You know, what is that? And, and that was hence the, like, let's get some neuropsych testing. Let's get some neurology You
1: Maybe you're right. Maybe we've been in the wrong system. Maybe psychiatry isn't it. So we did um, follow up. She had some proteins come up weird, you know, the ANA, and you can speak to that. But she it still seemed very inconclusive that this was an organically neurological event. She went and did neuropsych testing. Um, we had that consultation and the diagnostic findings from the neuropsych office, and he was—he seemed very clear. The clinician who read them to us and tried to help us interpret the findings seemed very clear that this was depression, depressive related the only diagnosis I have seen throughout the two years of Angie's experience was officially severe depression with psychosis. So we had heard those words, but to your point, when you said her frontal lobe, I mean, she'd go in the kitchen. It's like, she didn't know where to find the spoons. She calls me and says, I can't get water. I'm like, open the tap, just put your water. I know, but there was always an issue with how she couldn't function in these very basic ways there at the end. And the neuropsych uh, clinician did tell us that, what we see here, you know, you just take a battery of tests and they interpret the data. And basically he said, yes, he, he believed that this could be happening, that this seemed more in line with depression, anxiety, issues of the mind, not the brain. And he said, that's all very possible. Even your cognitive can seem wholly impaired and things can be, you know, really severe. So, you know, we, we ended up at the end of the day without being able to go back and get the full assessment and readout from the neurologist who had ordered the, all these tests because Angie had taken her life by then. But but if we leave it as it is, I think we would still be under the impression that it was psychiatry and not neurological.
0: I literally do think it was psychiatry and not neurological dysfunction, even though she had a anemia, a positive ANA. Those things don't look like that typically. And then most mostly I think that because she was able to research multiple different ways of committing suicide, able to Execute them in many ways, you know, two at least attempts, maybe more, you know, but yet she could not figure out how to get groceries or function in her adult life. So that is inconsistent. That discrepancy with being able to attend to and follow through and hold information in these networks of the brain is in and of itself inconsistent with the idea of of some kind of underlying degenerative process. Having personally witnessed Angie's descent into a severe depression, I still find myself at a loss to understand it clinically. As strange as that is, I had not really understood that there are depression cases so refractory to treatment that it is essentially a terminal illness. A terminal depression, like a degenerative condition or an advanced cancer. I have, of course, had clinical encounters with patients who aren't adequately treated for their psychiatric conditions. But that's usually because of medication noncompliance or illicit drug use or inadequate access to the system. And at least in those situations, I can assume that they could get better if only they got their meds or stopped the drugs. But in Angie's case, I know firsthand that her family got her to her appointments. She got her medicines, she took her medicines, she had access to providers as much as anyone did during COVID. Amy and I have pondered how it may have been different if at some point a provider had been able to say that there is no cure. That ultimately, there may be some symptom management available for Angie, meds for anxiety, agitation, paranoia, but the condition will progress regardless and she will die from it. It is challenging to accurately identify the prevalence of treatment-resistant major depression, though estimates that I found in researching it, this ranges from 20 to 45% depending, of course, on the definition used and the methods. But in one sense, maybe knowing that it was untreatable and likely to be fatal could have provided some understanding and clarity for the family and maybe even the patient. If a family had that kind of prognostic information, which is only really available retrospectively, maybe they would give themselves permission to stop looking for a cure and just spend whatever time is left with the patient. Then again, how could a psychiatrist make such a prognosis for something like a terminal depression whose outcome is inevitably suicide without it potentially becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy? How could any provider or family or patient accept that conclusion? There's an interesting divide between neurology and psychiatry. In neurology, we have amyloid plaques, neuronal degeneration, tau inclusions that we can look at in the brain to explain the inevitable decline of the organ's function. But the psyche is this more conceptual entity that is some amalgamation of how we each individually incorporate all of the various information our brains are encountering into some coherent construct of our world. It's an intangible and hence derangements of it are too. Side note here, accounts vary about when the divergence in the field truly began, but most attribute this split to sometime in the late 19th century after Freud. Interestingly, many of the giants of neurology, Charcot, Babinski, Mallory, were engaged in a coherent study of the nervous system and its manifestations psychiatrically, which certainly seemed to involve a lot of hysterical women. In fact, as I understand it, Babinski discovered his eponymous reflex in his quest, along with his mentor Charcot, for a physical finding that could distinguish hysterical from pathological paralysis. To explain the patient's clinical demise in neurologically untreatable degenerative conditions, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, or Huntington's disease, we look towards biological processes, like impaired lymphatic clearance of neuronal debris, or breakdown of the blood-brain barrier, enzymatic dysregulation, or even viral or autoimmune interference in complex systems. But in a depression like Angie experienced, or in some other psychiatric pathology like drug and alcohol addiction, There can be an element of what seems like a willful participation of the patient in complex behaviors that directly result in self-harm. Even in Angie's case, having known her as a functioning, capable adult, I remember harboring a sense that she should, and could, somehow decide to stop repeating, like a mantra, the narrative she had manufactured about her despair and her irredeemably dismal reality of the world. Just as with alcohol and drug addiction, when patients make seemingly conscious decisions to repeatedly harm themselves with substances, it is difficult to understand this as a purely biological process. But rationally, no one would choose to live with the kind of despair and pain that these patients suffer, so it is clearly not a choice. And it is maybe largely this element that is composed of what feels like the will that psychiatry bravely takes on, whereas neurology limits itself to the actual organs comprising the nervous system. For me, Angie's course through this illness eliminated the relatively arbitrary distinction between the fields of neurology and psychiatry. Her brain function was clearly impaired by her psychological condition, and as we discussed in the interview, I had real concerns for primarily neurological conditions, underpinning at least some element of it, which was never borne out. Considering the psyche analogously to the brain, maybe there is some kind of dysregulation or toxic accumulation, like the toxic plaques in Alzheimer's, that interrupts the process of the psyche maintaining a healthy or even tolerable construction of the world. And maybe similarly, understanding why or how this begins in some people, is as elusive as understanding why and how Lewy bodies or amyloid plaques or prions accumulate in some brains and not others. Some combination of environmental exposures, hereditary, lifestyle, diet, personality, birth sign, And even though Angie's story is of treatment failure, statistics show that most people with depression can be successfully treated. Again, those statistics vary with the definitions and methodologies. Neurohospitalists and neurologists will encounter these patients, and often can find no specific neurological diagnosis, referencing the normal MRI, EEG, CSF, serum labs, We may even say the neuro exam is normal, citing their ability to speak, move, and sense, with more subtle neurocognitive defects deferred to the neuropsychologist but we're obviously missing something. I'm hopeful that scientific inquiry might one day uncover an explanation for major depression that will be something like future generations will have a hard time imagining that we didn't know instinctively, like germ theory or evolution, something that has been right in front of us all along, but that we just can't yet see because we haven't asked the right questions. Thanks for joining us today on this first of two episodes this month that are gonna be dedicated to May's Mental Health Awareness Month. I'd like to thank you, Amy, for offering up this personal and painful story that unfortunately too many people have experience with. On part two, we are going to continue to explore the overlap between psychiatry and neurology with a discussion with a psychiatrist about the clinical and diagnostic tools available. Comments, questions, or thoughts about today's episode or anything else you've heard here at The Secret Life of Neuro Hospitalists, email us at secretlifeneuro@gmail.com. at gmail.com.